Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 14, Berzelius. In this episode, we shall talk more about Junz Jakob Berzelius and his work. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. Before we continue to the major topic of this episode, Berzelius, let's look at one bizarre connection between American politics and chemistry. First, we mention Thomas Jefferson, who eulogized the great Joseph Priestley. Jefferson, though not a world-famous scientist like his compatriot, Benjamin Franklin, did dabble in a variety of scientific pursuits. But he also sent the following letter to Dr. Thomas Ewell, a surgeon in the U.S. Navy, in 1805. Of the importance of turning a knowledge of chemistry to household purposes, I have been long satisfied. The common herd of philosophers seem to write only for one another. The chemists have filled volumes on the composition of a thousand substances of no sort of importance to the purposes of life, while the arts of making bread, butter, cheese, vinegar, soap, beer, cider, etc. remain unexplained. Chaptal has lately given the chemistry of winemaking. The late Dr. Pennington did the same as to bread, and promised to pursue the line of rendering his knowledge useful to common life, but death deprived us of his labors. Good treatises on these subjects should receive general approbation. To Jefferson, chemistry is all about practical chemistry. Theory had no place for him. By the way, here Jefferson refers to the French chemist Jean-Antoine Chaptal. Then we mention Jefferson's rival, John Adams. Dr. John Gorham was appointed to be the Irving Professor of Chemistry at Harvard University in 1816. John Adams congratulated him in a letter. Chemists, pursue your experiments with indefatigable ardor and perseverance. Give us the best possible bread, butter, and cheese, wine, beer, and cider, houses, ships, and steamboats, gardens, orchards, fields, not to mention clothiers or cooks. If your investigations lead accidentally to any deep discovery, rejoice and cry, Eureka! But never institute any experiment with a view or a hope of discovering the first and smallest particles of matter. Adams could not comprehend atoms, and could not help laughing at atoms. He also spelled chemists with the now obsolete C-H-Y. Junz Jakob Berzelius, born in Stockholm, Sweden in 1779, was the world's first chemist whose day job was being a chemist, rather than as a scientific hobby while working at another job. And he grew up in the aftermath of Lavoisier's chemical revolution. One of his students, Heinrich Rose, said that chemistry became an exact science through Berzelius's efforts. Berzelius's formal education was in medicine and chemistry, still somewhat closely related, 
earned him an MD degree, which led to his interest in the new electrochemistry to use for medical treatments. He, like Davy, discovered elements, particularly selenium and thorium, and gets at least partial credit for cerium. He identified silicon properly, which is a good thing, because silicon is what allows you to hear my podcast, for it's a necessary component of all current computers and computer-like devices. He also isolated zirconium and titanium. As a new chemistry lecturer, he wanted to write a good textbook, which eventually became his Larbuk i Chemien, but was frustrated by lack of data. So he had to perform many experiments just to get proper data for his book. He viewed Humphrey Davy as lacking a global view of chemistry because, quote, he was not forced from the beginning to work his way into all parts of science as a whole, unquote, as he wrote in 1831. Over time, Berzelius began to feel that the global view, the system of chemistry, ought to guide one's view of new experiments. As we shall see, his supposed complete and sometimes egotistical view caused conflicts and confrontations with other chemists later in his career. His systematic mind turned to mineralogy as well, where he reclassified minerals not on their crystalline form, the traditional way, but on their chemical composition. This created quite a controversy among mineralogists, who saw his chemical classification scheme as a way to pull the rug out from under them and grab mineralogy as a subclassification of chemistry. His assistant was Anna Sundström, a farmer's daughter. Starting in 1808, she began as Berzelius's housekeeper, but eventually became his assistant and then co-worker, eventually administrating his laboratory and was a supervisor. Her knowledge of chemistry grew immensely, to the point where Berzelius noted that, quote, she is used to all my equipment and their names to such a degree that I could without hesitation make her distill hydrochloric acid, unquote. Their professional relationship terminated upon Berzelius's marriage in 1836 to Elizabeth Papias, when Berzelius's fiancée objected to Anna's presence. The Swedish Chemical Society gives out an Anna Sundström Award annually for the best PhD thesis in inorganic chemistry in her honor. By the way, in many chemical laboratories to this day, you can find what's called a Berzelius beaker. It looks like a standard beaker, cylindrical glass vessel with a small spout, but is taller and narrower. One example of Berzelius's stubbornness and conflict is over Davy's new metals discovered around 1808. Berzelius tried to redo the electrolysis experiments, the electrical separation of metals from oxides, but he didn't have the huge 250-plate battery that Davy constructed. The weaker electric pile in Berzelius's laboratory used a negative pole of mercury, giving amalgams of the various metals with mercury. An amalgam is a metallic alloy of mercury with another metal. Often, an amalgam is used to fill cavities in teeth. In Berzelius's case, he got amalgams of sodium, potassium, calcium, and barium, and not pure metals. Were these amalgams elements? Or mixtures? If you don't know beforehand, how do you decide? Davy noted that sodium and potassium react strongly with water, evolving hydrogen gas, and forming a caustic alkali. What was really the source of the hydrogen gas? Some chemists opined that the hydrogen was in the metals, 
so the metals cannot be elements. Davy and Berzelius argued hydrogen was evolved from the water, and the metals reacted with the remaining oxygen to form caustic alkalis. Chemists saw an analogy of this reaction to that of basic ammonia, what we call ammonium. Was ammonium a product of caustic ammonia plus hydrogen, just like potassium was a product of caustic potash plus hydrogen? Or was ammonium a product of caustic ammonia losing oxygen, like potassium was a product of caustic potash losing oxygen, as Davy and Berzelius thought? In this analogy, according to Davy and Berzelius, caustic potash is an oxide, so ammonia also has to be an oxide except elemental analysis found only nitrogen and hydrogen in ammonia. Why no oxygen? Berzelius believed that nitrogen itself was a compound of oxygen plus the actual element azote. The answer was found in water itself, in the same way that phlogiston theory ignored the role of air. The French scientist Ampère demonstrated in 1816 that ammonia only is basic when dissolved in water. Exactly why that was required an ionic theory of solutions that would appear in the late 19th century. But for now, chemists finally realized that water was somehow necessary to make certain compounds into acids or bases. Or what about the acidic nature of chlorine? Lavoisier thought that there was an inherent atom of oxygen mixed in somehow, because all acids contain oxygen in his view. Chlorine, dissolved in water in sunlight, evolves oxygen gas. But like ammonia, chlorine heated in dry conditions would not give any oxygen. And then, there were similar compounds to muriatic, hydrochloric acid. Hydrogen sulfide has no oxygen. Hydrocyanic acid has no oxygen. And the same is true for hydrofluoric and hydroiotic acids even as Berzelius refused to accept the elements fluorine and iodine till the 1820s. So it eventually seemed to chemists that the commonality of acids was containing hydrogen, not oxygen. And again, a good theory for acidity would have to wait till the late 19th century. Let's return to measurements, especially for atomic weights. If we recall for Dalton's new atomic theory, Dalton postulated a shell or layer of heat around each atom. The general belief at the time was that the same amount of heat was around all atoms, first considered for gases, but then slowly chemists agreed that even if liquid or solid, the atoms had to have such a heat layer. This would imply that the amount of heat that a substance absorbs per degree of temperature and per unit of weight would be equal for all elements. The term specific heat is the technical term here, which should be identical for all elements. French scientists Pierre-Louis Dulong and Alexis-Thérèse Petit published exactly such measurements in 1819 for 13 different elements. While the specific heat of elements differs per gram of element, if you multiply the specific heat of elements by their atomic weights, you got almost a constant. This even gave a general rule for estimating atomic weights, at least for solids, that if you measure the specific heat of some material, you can work backwards and guess its atomic weight. 
Most chemists, however, found this rule way too empirical, with no really good physical reason for such a relationship. There was another, more accepted rule about chemical composition that appeared largely from the work of French priest René Juste Harry at that time. This was that chemicals crystallize in certain forms based on their composition. That was easier for chemists to grasp. In this way, chemists began to understand that when you compare calcium carbonate's crystal form to that of iron carbonate and zinc carbonate, the forms are all similar. Likewise, phosphates crystallize similarly, and arsenates do as well. Howe himself proclaimed, The external form and the chemical composition are each other's image. By 1819, Eilhard Mitscherlich gave a new generalization. An equal number of atoms, combined in the same manner, produces equal crystal forms, and the form of the crystals is determined not by the nature of the atoms, but by their arrangement and manner of combination. Based on Dulong and Petit's rule, plus Mitscherlich's work, Berzelius was able to correct many of his atomic weights by dividing them in half. But let's remember, these atomic weights were relative units, either to hydrogen as Dalton did, or to oxygen as Berzelius first did. These were not absolute values, say, in actual grams. How to find what a single atom weighed seemed a ridiculous prospect. Even Dalton's first convert, Thomas Thompson, noted in 1825, quote, All the knowledge that we are likely ever to acquire of the atomic weight of bodies is merely the ratio of these weights, unquote. So, by the early 1800s, chemists were able to isolate new elements by electrolysis and by laboratory analysis, that is, by precipitating salts of elements and comparing their properties to known salts. This worked reasonably well, as long as the chemist could remove traces of impurities. By Lavoisier's time, there were 33 elements, including the non-elements of heat and light, and the number of elements kept growing. Martin Klaproth, in Germany, for example, worked with a gold ore colored bluish-white and named Aurum Problematicum. He dissolved this Problematicum in aqua regia, we heard of it in medieval times, precipitated the excess gold and iron with alkaline potash, and neutralized the basic solution precisely with hydrochloric acid. This gave a white precipitate, which he dried and distilled with oil. The result was a new metal, tellurium. Then, in 1793, he found a metal zirconium in the semi-precious gem zircon. He found a metal titanium in the mineral rutile. Other elements discovered during this time were beryllium, chromium, cerium, selenium, vanadium, osmium, iridium, and lithium. So, by 1817, Leopold Gmelin's handbook listed 48 elements, and the fourth edition in 1843 showed 55 elements. Honestly, how many were there to be found? Would this go on forever? The answer, again, will begin to appear in the late 19th century, but we are not there yet. In our next episode, we shall begin to divide up the world of chemistry into various sections. The first section we shall uncover is the beginnings of organic chemistry. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. (laughs) 